Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now remembering that heaven is your throne, that the earth is your footstool, and that, Father, you have no need of a house for you rule and reign over the entire universe. Father, with that vision of majesty and glory in our mind, we are astonished that you tell us that the one to whom you will look is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at your word. Father, we pray this morning that as we come as needy people, that you would help us to feel the weight of our need. That you would help us to come not as haughty, not as arrogant before you, the Holy One. But Father, we will come humble and contrite, trembling at your word. For we know, Father, that you alone have the words of life. And as we listen to you this morning, you will minister to our souls and give strength to our faith. So God, may you cause us to have eyes that can see and ears to hear what you would have us to behold this morning through Jesus in your word. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews chapter 1. We've come to the end of uh, 2018, and it has been the custom in our culture, especially we find ourselves at a breaking point from all the normal routines. And naturally, our minds go back to all of the uh, joys as well as the struggles of the previous year, and we begin to think about how are things going to be different in the year to come? How are things going to be better? Uh, Some still produce for themselves a list of New Year's resolutions. Statistics tell us that by February, 80% of those are done, no longer followed through. Unfortunately, that's some of us with our yearly Bible reading plan. Even if it comes to no mere or no formal resolution, we're still mindful of our lives. We still want things to be different in some small way, maybe in some big ways. We are all keenly aware of the problems that we've had, and we have high hopes for something better in the year to come. The question is, how will this something better happen? Where are we putting our hope for 2019? When life happens and the wheels fall off and the Christian life becomes a struggle, what are we, what are we looking to? What, what are we hoping in? What, what, what are we grabbing on to? to sustain ourselves, and to help us to move forward. This morning, my goal as we stand on the pivot of 2018 into 2019, and Lord willing, for many years to come, my assigned goal is to give you a vision of Jesus' glory 
that is going to be so big and so majestic that he will be the thing you hold on to in 2019. He will be the source of your hope and your confidence, even in the worst of circumstances. I hope that in the light of Jesus' glory, all of the cheap but shiny trends and advice and baubles and idols of this world that we are tempted to put our hope and confidence in will wither and die. Because Christ is so much better. And they are so empty and vain when it comes to giving us something that will sustain us in the midst of life's difficulties. So this morning... As we just sang, I want to, from Hebrews 1, help you to look at Jesus. I want you to look at him and be encouraged to fix your eyes on him throughout the coming year. In order to do this, we want to look at the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1 today. And I invite you to stand as I read God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of God. Hear it and believe. You may be seated. In these opening verses, Hebrews lays out several of the major themes that uh, the author will unwind and circle around in this sermon-like letter. Uh, Hebrews is notoriously difficult to Uh, outline, not in terms of topic, but in terms of flow of thought. Because Hebrews will say something, he'll move on to something else, and then he'll come back to what he's already said before. It's very much an Eastern mindset. Instead of a a linear progressive argument, a circling around the topic. And here, he, he lays out several things that he will circle back to again and again and again throughout this letter. And if we will understand the the kind of roles that he lays out for Jesus, then we will understand why we should fix our eyes on him, and why we should be encouraged by him. So as we think about looking to Jesus, here's the question, how will we respond to him? Uh, As we will see in a minute, Christ has three major roles to play in our lives, and each of them demand a response. So the first thing that we need to do this morning as we look to Jesus is we need to listen to Jesus, our prophet. We need to listen to Jesus, our prophet. The prophetic ministry of the Bible is one of conveying God's word to God's people. And so when we think about the role of prophet, we don't necessarily need to think about uh, just in terms of those people that have books named after them in the middle of the Old Testament. Uh, The Bible also calls people like Abel and Abraham and Enoch and Miriam and Anna prophets or prophetesses, those that conveyed God's word to God's people. And so Hebrews says that long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, let's just pause it, but before we get into what exactly that means, let's just think about the underlying assumption here. Because far too often, I think we just kind of if you're anything like me anyway, you're just going to blow past it and we forget. 
the God of the universe has spoken. He has revealed himself with words to us, his creation. It's almost hard to comprehend the magnitude of that reality. We're so used to the Bible that it can almost become unreal to consider that it's not just the work of human hands, that God himself was speaking and preserved that word for us, his people. That the Holy One who exists in eternal glory has made himself known to us through words. Words which we, which we can have in our language which we can buy nicely in leather and carry around with us and open up at any time we want and read and hear from this God. It is amazing. God has not just done this once. He's not just done this a handful of times. He has done this in many ways and at many times throughout the history of the world. And it's staggering if we stop and consider it. But Hebrews is making a more specific point here this morning. The way he describes God's speaking, his revelation of himself, is, is, a, is of a fragmentary nature. As if God is giving us bits and pieces across a few millennia to make himself known. And he does not want to say that what has come later is more true, or what has come before is less true, but rather, we did not have a complete picture of God's revelation of himself. Now, however, now... God has given his final definitive word to his people. How? Through his own son, Jesus. And so when Jesus speaks the final word of God's revelation, he speaks as God's son. He speaks as God's son. In this regard, Jesus is no mere prophet because he was no mere man. He's God's son. And what exactly does that mean? Well, Hebrews doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us that as God's son, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. The, the kind of verbal picture um, that's behind the language there is of an object, most often a coin, that had an image, an impression stamped on it of someone else. So we think about in, uh, in Hebrews' day, Caesar being stamped on coins. In our day, we think of people like Kennedy and Lincoln and Roosevelt. But Jesus is more than just a copy. Hebrews says he is the exact imprint. He bears in the words of the RSV, the very stamp of God's nature. So Jesus is not part of God, nor is he a godlike being. Unlike what the early Christian heretics or New Age thinkers today would say, Christ is not merely a man who has a God consciousness about him. He instead is the exact imprint of God. In other words, he fully shares in the divine nature. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. And as God's son, we're told, as this divine being, Jesus was the one through whom God created the world. Moreover, he continues to uphold the universe by the word of his power. So how did the world come into existence? Christ created it. How were the stars set in their courses? Christ put them there. How was humanity made? Christ fashioned him from the dust of the earth. But Hebrew goes further. What holds the universe together? What, what keeps it running as it should? Jesus is the answer. Unlike the watchmaker God of the deists, Christ did not create the world, kind of wind it up and say, there you go. Laws of nature in place. I'm done. No, 
He is its ongoing, sustaining force. One of the the many natural wonders that I find fascinating is the Aurora Borealis, the the northern lights. Some of you may have been able to to see them before. Most of us have probably seen them in a picture or video. But when we lived in Michigan, one of the first winters we, we were there, came home on a Sunday night on an exceptionally cold night from church, and there they were, the sky on fire, green and blue, and it was absolutely captivating. I stood out there uh, alternating between hot chocolate and and, uh, negative 14 degrees to just continue to watch these things for a couple hours that night. But I was even more impressed when I did a little bit of research and found out why do the northern lights occur? Well, for you science geeks in here, you'll know that there are charged particles that get blown across our solar system as coronal matter is ejected from the sun and blown by solar winds that end up hitting the earth's surface. But we have this amazing thing that God put in place called a magnetic field. So most of those particles bounce off and never never come in contact with us. At the poles, though, those magnetic fields are a little bit weaker, and so some of those particles get through, and they hit gas particles. And guess what that does? It creates the northern lights. So, in light of Hebrews 1, when I see the northern lights, here's, here's what I know. Christ is sustaining the universe. He's also sustaining human life and keeping us from being eradicated by solar radiation. It is a, it is a divine light show pointing me to Jesus, who even now upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ speaks as God's divine son, and he also reveals God's glory. He reveals God's glory. Hebrews says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. That means he is no mere reflection. It is not like the moon, which we see at night reflecting sunlight back to us. No, it wells up from within him. It radiates out from him. He is the source of God's glory. So so, so think about this. When the children of Israel were moving through the wilderness, and by day they saw a pillar of cloud, uh, and at night a pillar of fire, what were they seeing but the glory of God? When God came down on Mount Sinai and it was filled with lightning and thunder and thick cloud. They saw the glory of God. What caused Moses' face to shine as he came down off the mountain but the smallest glimpse of the glory of God? What did the people see when Solomon dedicated the first temple that came down and covered it and consumed it? The glory of God. What did the high priest see when once a year he went into the Holy of Holies? hovering above the Ark of the Covenant, but the glory of God. In all of these times, the sun was making God's presence known, often in powerful and terrifying ways. Now, on one level, we're grateful for that. We're thankful for that. Israel should have been thankful for that. But there was something lacking. It was impersonal. An impersonal manifestation of God's glory. But now, now in the person of Jesus, God the Son has stepped out of eternity into history. He has taken on human flesh and walked among his people, revealing God's glory face to face. Christ was the ultimate prophet because he alone could bridge the gap perfectly between God and man. He could deliver the clearest, fullest, most direct revelation of God. So when your children ask you, what is is God like? 
Or when you're trying to, to witness at work and, you, and your coworkers say, well, I don't know what God's like. You say, sure you can. Read the New Testament. What is Jesus like? He is the fullest revelation. He is the, the radiance of God's glory. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. And in all of this, Jesus fulfills God's purposes. Jesus fulfills God's purposes. When God has spoken through, through his son, when has he done that? Hebrews tells us, in these last days. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that very often in the prophetic books, these last days or in those days is a common term that talks about the time when all of God's promises will be fulfilled. All of the prophetic, prophetic words will come to pass. And what does Hebrews say? This is that time. This is that time God has spoken in these last days. How has he spoken? Not through just human prophets. He has spoken through the ultimate prophet, through his son. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians, that all of the promises of God are now yes and amen in Christ. So all of those many times and in many ways from Genesis to Malachi have now been brought together and clarified. The mysteries have been revealed through Jesus' final word. That's in part why he, he is called the heir of all things. Many of you like those early verses in Ephesians 1. Think about what comes in the middle in verses 9 and 10. God has made known to us, what? The mystery of his will. How? According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Hebrews is telling us that now the final prophet has come, bringing a final word of revelation from God, bringing to fulfillment all of God's plans and purposes. Like John 1 and Colossians 1, Hebrews gives us this, what's been called nosebleed Christology. It is this super high view of Jesus and all of his divine person and work that stretches back into eternity to, to, to see how everything has come to fulfillment in him. Why does he start his letter off like that? Well, think about it like this. Some of you know the, the name Legan Duncan. He's one of the key speakers every year at the Together for the Gospel conferences. He was the former pastor of uh, First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, and now he's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary. Before he was all that, right, Reverend Dr. Legan Duncan, he was little 10-year-old League. And this 10-year-old Ten-year-old uh, little boy, Legan Duncan, was on his uh, was with his father on a trip to Scotland one year, and apparently Legan's dad was a Rotarian. I don't know if you're a Rotarian or not, but my understanding is you have a very rigorous meeting schedule, and it doesn't matter if you're out of town or not. You find the local Rotary club and you go to their meeting, and that's exactly what League did. Took his little son along, so they're at uh, this um, Rotarian luncheon. And uh, League is just kind of looking around, uh, reading a book, and his dad gets into this discussion with another guy there, uh, in League's words, a very distinguished-looking gentleman, about the history of the Scottish people who moved to Ireland and then immigrated to America. And at some point in the middle of this conversation, uh, League and Duncan's dad got a little irritated and told the man, you don't know what you're talking about. And that kind of woke up League and what, what's going on in this conversation? So he looks at the name tag they're all wearing. And he, said, he sees on there the name J.D. Mackey from the University of Edinburgh. And suddenly a light goes on for Little League. He looks down in his lap the book that was given to him to read on this trip to Scotland, a history of Scotland written by J.D. Mackey from the University of Edinburgh. And suddenly 
League goes pale, he says. And he's thinking, Dad, you don't know who you're talking to. So he's going, Dad, Dad. And he's like, shh, be quiet, boy. And he's yelling and arguing with this guy. He doesn't know anything about the history of the Scotch-Irish that came to America. And League is pulling on and said, Dad, Dad, you don't know who it is. Look, look, look who this is. And he's like, he's like, shh, be quiet, quiet, quiet. He keeps us arguing. So they leave. And, and finally he says, Dad, you didn't know who this was? That, that was J.D. Mackey. He wrote this book of history of Scotland. He looks at it and he says, well, the man still didn't know what he was talking about. They handed the book back. Now, Hebrews does not want us to make the same mistake with Jesus. He's going to say again and again, listen to Jesus, follow Jesus, trust Jesus. And he begins by giving us his credentials. Don't make the mistake of saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, we got it, we got it, Jesus. No, 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 stop. Stop and listen to Jesus, your prophet. Because of who he is, no mere man, God in the flesh, speaking God's final, definitive word. As Christians, our relationship to the scriptures can be an unfortunately complex thing. For on the one hand, we say all of our theology, all of our ministry, all of our ideas about marriage and parenting, and how we live every part of our life is based on what? God's word. Too often, God's word just sits on the shelf. It doesn't even get moved around like the elf either. It just sits there collecting dust. So what should we do? Well, sometimes we feel the prompting of God's spirit to take it up and read. But then we give in to sinful ways of thinking. We think, ah, it's boring. It's boring. There's old stories of kings and genealogies and there's lists. I just can't get into that. And so we leave it sitting on the shelf. There are other times when we feel the imperfection of our lives and we look at the scriptures and it looks like, a 75-pound weight, a 100-pound weight, that the thought of trying to pick it up and open it up is so terrifying because we know we have been living in ongoing open rebellion against God. We don't dare feel its convicting power, so we leave it on the shelf. Others of us who have been Christians for a long time, who have studied the Bible, who have listened to hundreds and hundreds of sermons, can begin to find the Bible commonplace. Been there, done that. Got the study Bibles. I've read it. I know it. What more can I possibly learn? So we just leave it sit. But Hebrews is telling us, don't do that. Don't do that. Listen to the Son. Listen to our prophet, the one who has given us the final definitive word that, that, that causes us not just to, to stay in the New Testament and to, and to read Paul's letters of the Sermon on the Mount, but the one who, who retroactively gives new meaning and life and power to the Old Testament scriptures in fresh ways, in ways that the Old Testament saints could not have imagined. If we will open up and read, what we will find eventually we may have to work at it, but eventually, it's not a boring book. It's not a, 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 a weighty book that's meant to crush us. It is the voice of our Savior, which will be a balm to our soul, which will give strength to our weak legs and will deepen our faith. But more than that, we need to open the Scriptures and listen to the voice of our prophet because there's nothing else out there that's coming. So, 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 so many Christians are looking for this, I want a fresh word from the Lord. I want a fresh word from the Lord. I want to hear God's voice. Well, I love what John Piper says. If you want to hear God's voice, read the Bible out loud. Because that's all you're going to get. There's nothing else coming. 
There is this tendency in our culture to, to just want the, the latest and greatest, whether it's a technology thing, whether it's some kind of life hack or whatever it is, and we allow that to infiltrate our spiritual reality. And so we're thinking, well, what is there beyond the Bible that will be helpful to me? And so sometimes we, uh, in our culture especially, we're, we're going after other religions and cults and all kinds of things. But as one of my favorite rappers' results says, I've got 66 books and the Quran ain't one. Neither is the Book of Mormon. Neither is the Gnostic Gospels. Neither is the Jesus Calling Devotional or whatever else we're looking for. This is it. And gloriously, it's all that we need. Because Jesus has spoken the final definitive word. If God has spoken through his Son, why, why, would, why would we need anything else? If we will take up God's word, we'll find the words of life and wisdom, encouraging, fortifying for our souls in 2019 and what life will throw at us. So this morning, as we look to Jesus, listen to his voice, the voice of your prophet as you take up God's word. But secondly, secondly, trust Jesus as our priest. Trust Jesus our priest. Hebrews says, that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does Jesus do as our priest? At least two things. Number one, he satisfied God's wrath. He satisfied God's wrath. Remember that this letter was written before AD 70. That there was still a temple standing in Jerusalem. It was a very active temple where every day people would come and and offer uh, or, or pay money to have the priest offer sacrifices for their sins. And then once a year, with great pomp and circumstance, the high priest would offer a sin of atonement for all the people of Israel. He would enter into the most holy place where God's presence had once resigned it, but was no longer there, you remember from Ezekiel. that The glory of God had left. And how did the glory return? When Jesus came as a little baby for the rite of circumcision and, and, and blessing and for the, the offering of the two doves that, that was given to, to ransom him back from God. That's when the glory returned. But the atonement that was offered by that high priest was only a temporary atonement. It was a, it was a great and gracious thing. But it was only temporary. As soon as the sacrifice was made, as soon as the blood was spilt, as soon as the fire was burned and the offering went up, the clock began ticking for the next year. Can, can, can you imagine being there that day? Seeing the sights, smelling the smells, rejoicing in God's provision, but knowing, God, do it all again next year. And the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that. Now, though, those sacrifices have come to an end through Jesus. Hebrews will later say in chapter 10, in those sacrifices, the ones that were continually offered, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what did Jesus offer as a, as a better high priest? Not the blood of an animal. His own divine blood. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. And behind that sacrifice was his perfect righteousness. The life that he lived fully in obedience to God, not, not just because he had to, but because he wanted to. The law of God being applied by the Spirit of God. Flowing out of his heart. 
Jesus achieved righteousness so that when he offered himself for sins on the cross, he was the perfect spotless lamb and his blood would fully atone for all our sins forever. We deserve to be on that cross. We're like a drunken man who foolishly begins cooking his dinner and sets a fire in his kitchen but passes out on the couch and has no idea this blaze is burning all around him, threatening the lives of all around him, about to bring down the entire house upon him and consume him. Christ is like the firefighter that runs in, who endures the flame, who pushes through the smoke to come and to rescue this person who doesn't deserve to be rescued. On the cross, God's wrath was aimed at us like a giant just and righteous arrow. The, 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 the flames of his just fury against our sin were about to, to, to break out like a blaze of fire. But Christ willingly, joyfully took upon himself that wrath. And God is not the kind of God that says, okay, well, the punishment was dealt with, but I'm not going to forget about it. You get out of line and it's still coming at you. That's not the promise. When Jesus died, his final words were, it is finished. It's done. The transaction is complete. All of the wrath stored up against our sin has been satisfied by Jesus, our high priest, who was also the sacrifice. So unlike those old covenant priests who were constantly standing, constantly working, constantly ministering, Christ was able to sit down for the work was complete. There is no need for a further sacrifice. God's wrath against sin was satisfied. But more than that, more than that, as our high priest in whom we should trust, Christ purifies God's people. He purifies God's people. Later in chapter 10, Hebrews will say that we can approach God without fear if we have trusted in Christ. Why? Because in Him, our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's not just our judgment has been taken away. Our guilt for sin has been taken away. There is no more guilt before God if we have trusted in Christ. And He is our priest. But we make two mistakes. We make two mistakes. The first is very often one before we ever come to Christ. Maybe this morning it's keeping you from coming to Christ. We think somehow we're just too bad. We've just done too much wrong. That our life has been forfeit. That God can never forgive us. To that we just say, who did God offer? He offered his own son. Are you saying that your sin is so bad? That it outweighs the glorious sacrifice of Jesus? The righteous and holy love of God? I think not. I think not, my friends. Moreover, those who have already put their faith in Christ. We have this temptation to be weighed down with guilt for past and present sin. Certainly when we do sin as God's people, God's Spirit rightly convicts us. But why does He convict us? So we will confess that sin. We will repent of that sin. And we'll be able to be assured of our fellowship with the Father. But very often we allow ourselves to forget of the finished work of Christ. And we continue to bear this guilt. We continue to feel this weight, but that is not why Christ died. It is not why Christ lives again. He came that our consciences might be purified, 
that there would be no more guilt for sin. So, so Luther used to say that when Satan comes to him and says, you're a terrible person, you're a bad theologian, you're a rotten sinner, how could God ever love you? He would say back to Satan, of course, of course I'm all those things. And the only reason why I can live a guilt-free life is because Christ has died for me and he has paid for my sins. And we should be able to say the same thing. Christ is our priest, therefore our hearts have been purified. But this morning, if, if that's not you, if you're not a believer, maybe you thought you were a believer, but you realize I, I, I've lived with guilt for so long. I, 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 I do all these religious things because I think that's what's going to make me right with God. Then forsake all of that and look to Jesus. Look to him as your priest. Trust in his work on the cross to take away God's wrath and bring you forgiveness and give you a life free of guilt because he bore that for us. Look to him and believe this morning. As we prepare for the rigors of 2019 and beyond, we will be encouraged and sustained if we listen to Jesus, our prophet, trust Jesus, our priest, and finally follow Jesus, our king. Follow Jesus, our king. Notice that Hebrews describes the kingship of Jesus by first telling us that he reigns with God's authority. He reigns with God's authority. Where is Jesus' throne? Verse 3 tells us, after his priestly work was accomplished, after he made atonement for sins, he sat down where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. Being at the right hand of a king in the ancient world was both a position of honor as well as authority. And there's no higher king than God. Doesn't, there's, no, there's no greater Supreme Court of Appeals. There's nothing. He's the king of the universe. And so to be at his right hand means that Jesus himself is not only enjoying the place of privilege for being the Savior, but he also enjoys the authority of God the Father himself, ruling and reigning in supreme authority over all things. And so later in verse 8 of chapter 1, we see that he doesn't just have this authority, but it never ends. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And he's speaking of Jesus here. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Verse 13, God says, sit at my right hand to his son. When? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then finally in chapter 2, verse 8, we read that in putting everything under Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him. So here is a king that God the Father has put all things under his feet as a footstool. Everything is in subject to him. The entire universe sways to his will. And that reign will never go away. Think for a minute about just throughout history, all of those monarchs and leaders and tyrants and dictators who ruled parts of the world and thought nothing could stop them. Think of men like those leaders in Babel and the Nebuchadnezzars and the Caesars or maybe in more modern times, the Stalins and the Pol Pots and the Hitlers. Brash, bold, cruel, seemingly all-powerful. Yet where are they all now? In the grave. Their bodies consumed by worms like everyone else. They couldn't stop death. At the end of the day, they were all mere men. But Jesus overcame death. Jesus gave his life on the cross, but he did not stay dead. He was raised back to life, victorious, never to die again. And when God exalted him to his right hand, he put all things under 
his feet. Jesus created the universe. Jesus sustains the universe. And now he rules the universe at the Father's right hand. But Christ's kingship is about more than power. Scripture is clear that he is the one who cares for, even watches over his people like a shepherd watches over his sheep. And so as Jesus reigns as king, he not only reigns with God's authority, but he also shepherds as God's Messiah. Hebrews says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This last verse, verse 4, is kind of a hinge that moves from these, this kind of opening section to the rest of the chapter where he goes on and on and on contrasting Jesus and angels. And it might be tempted to think, what's all this business about angels? Some have, some have supposed that, that the Hebrews were tempted to worship angels in some way. Now, that's never really been a problem for the Jewish people. Um, more likely, Hebrews is contrasting the role of angels with the role of Jesus the Son. And he's tying in both his kingly ministry as well as his prophetic ministry. Angels were mediators. They, they were the ones that conveyed God's word to the prophets and to the people. They brought the tablets to Moses on the mountain as God uh, carved it out with his finger, we're told. But notice, Jesus speaks directly. He needs no mediary. More than that, he picks up on this idea that no angel was called God's son. They are mere servants. But who is called God's son in the Old Testament? Well, Israel is. But within all of Israel, David, sons, the Davidic kings were all said to be by God, sons to me. And so what Hebrews is preparing us to understand is that Jesus has come as a Davidic king. Not, not just any old Davidic king. He has come as the full and final, the greatest, the promised Messiah, the great shepherd of God's people. He not only defeats all of our enemies, but spiritually leads us to green pastures and still waters that our souls can find rest in him and be satisfied. So this morning, I want you to think just for a minute. As your mind begins to wander throughout the day or as you lay in bed thinking at night right before you fall asleep, what, what worries you about 2019? What, what, what causes your, your heart to race a little bit, your, your blood pressure to go up? What, 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 what gives you concern? Is it your health? Is it your job situation? Is it something going on with your friends or family, your loved ones? Is it your finances? Is it your political convictions and whether or not things are going to turn out the way that you want? What troubles you? What worries you in 2019? And then ask yourself this. Why should that worry me when Jesus reigns over all of it? If I get a promotion or I lose the promotion, if I get a raise or become homeless, Christ is king reigning over all things, caring for me as the good shepherd. I can follow him. I can still obey him. If my body or the body of one of my loved ones becomes consumed with sickness, disease, cancer, Christ is king over that sickness. And I can still follow him. I can still obey him. Can you not see the immense care and love that he has already displayed in giving his very life for you. 
now in the midst of even the worst of circumstances, we can have every confidence to follow him, to follow Christ as our king. We can entrust our lives to him and rest assured that his commands are not burdensome, but they are ultimately the pathway to true and fullest joy. This morning I close with these words from Robert Marie McShane, and it is my prayer for all of us. He said this many years ago to his congregation. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And for all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his mighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that that would be true of us. We ask that because, Father, we know that's the only thing that's really going to sustain us over the long haul. That's really the only thing that's going to provide rest and satisfaction and joy to our hearts in the coming months, in the coming year, for the rest of our lives. So, Father, we pray that by your grace that you would help us to look at Jesus, to look full in his face, that when we see his glory, we might be changed into his likeness. We ask it all in his name. Amen. Let us stand and sing together.